scripture reading is for, uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to open there. Once again, that's Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, because their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. You see, my betrayer is at hand. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, You may be seated. I'm just going to grab my clock here so I don't go too long on you. All right, good to be back once again, uh, getting into the book of uh, Mark. Uh, you know, I'm sure I've told some of you this before, and maybe I've said it from here, I'm not even sure, um, that it's not rare that I'll have a dream leading into Sunday morning when I'm preaching or some other venue where I'm preaching, that I'll have a dream that I, I show up and I'm, I'm totally unprepared. 
So whether I, sometimes I just don't bring my Bible, sometimes the sermon's almost done, but it's not quite done, uh, and sometimes it's like I, I haven't even started, and I'm standing in the back going, like, i got to figure out something to say, and so it's just not rare for that to happen. It usually happens probably any, anywhere from one-fourth to one-third of the time that I preach. I, I have one of those dreams that, that week, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of it stems from my younger years as a, a terrible student, uh, not walking with the Lord, and that, that was that was common to get to the end of the semester and experience that. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, so there's probably some subconscious fear there. Um, but so it's not abnormal that I, I had one of those dreams uh, this week on Thursday night. Uh, but what is abnormal is that I had it again Friday night. So I had two nights in a row. It was like doubly this deep fear that I'm going to show up here this morning, have nothing to say. Uh, but I, I think what is going on is uh, I feel so intimidated by this passage. I just find this to be one of the richest passages uh, in Scripture, both uh, uh, the way Matt, uh, Mark tells it in Matthew and Luke. And it's just such a holy moment where the sinless Son of God, the one with such great power that we've been watching throughout the book, is full of such deep sorrow. And submitting to the Father. It's just such a holy moment that we, I am so thankful to the Lord that he, he opens the, the window a little bit to allow us to see it. And it's, this, this passage is meant to be comforting for God's people, stabilizing for our souls as we pilgrimage on this broken world that brings so much sorrow into us. And this passage invites us in with the Savior to hear his voice, to hear his comfort. And I just feel like there's no way I can do justice to it, but uh, we'll, we'll dive in. I, I, there's two major themes here going on. Uh, one is the unfaithfulness of the disciples uh, that really takes shape in chapter 14, the, 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 whole, the rest of the chapter, so the, the unfaithfulness of the disciples, uh, and of course the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. So you have these, these contrasting themes, the unfaithfulness of the disciples contrasted with the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. And so let's walk through both of these, uh, one after the other, and then we'll ask how these relate to one another. The unfaithfulness of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. Well, the first one uh, takes, really starts to shake, take shape in 27 to 31. Uh, I'll read it again, but just try to listen to how, how often you hear that theme of certain words being used about the, the unfaithfulness of the disciples that's coming up. Listen to it again. And Jesus said to them, verse 27, you will all fall away. Because it's written, it's written down in Holy Scripture. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, they're going to scatter. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, yeah, even if they all fall away, I, I hear that, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this, this, this very night, before the rooster crows twice in the morning, you, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. I'm sure you can hear the, the drumbeat there uh, that Mark has going on. They're all going to fall away. 
They're all going to be scattered. I will never fall away. You'll deny me three times. I will never deny you. It says uh, this double negative in the, in the text. Uh, I will never, ever deny you. That would never happen. And, of course, uh, from verse 37 and following, uh, through the rest of the chapter, you're going to see this very uh, proclamation of Jesus unravel. It starts off a little slow while they're sleeping, but then it just begins to go downhill quick. It's sort of like the, in a movie where you have like a, a, someone on the edge of a, a cliff or a hill in the car, and it's just cheatering on the edge, and you're you're wondering if it's going to go over, and here we're right on the edge, and verse 37, it's going to slowly tip forward, and then there it goes, and we'll watch them totally fall away. Now, Peter, of course, is extremely emphatic. There's no chance that I would do that. I will not scatter. I will not fall away. And I, I very much sympathize with Peter, uh, because I would very much want to say the same thing. We, we tend to think more highly of ourselves. We think we're a little bit stronger than we actually are, that I would never do uh, something like that. And I, I don't know what Peter thought at this, but what, what's puzzling to me and would be difficult for me is the fact that not only is Jesus telling me I'm going to fail him, but that is written down in Scripture, that God has ordained you to fail me. And that makes me scratch my head. Because it's like, wait, God has a design in me being unfaithful to him? And the way Luke, if you remember Luke's account, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and he says to, to Peter, uh, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you so that he may sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen the brothers. Now what, what grips me about that is that Jesus doesn't say, I've prayed for you, Peter, that Satan can do nothing. You're totally protected. You won't fall away. He says, no, I've prayed for you, that your faith doesn't ultimately fail there will be a sifting, but when you turn, strengthen the brothers. In other words, I will be using your very failure against me, your lack of loyalty to me. I will be using that for your good and for the good of the church. So let it happen. And that is that's just an amazing reality. It's a mystery uh, for many of us to try to wrap our heads around that, that God has goodness in him actually ordaining in bringing about your unfaithfulness to God. If you remember when we were talking about God's providence, uh, we paused and did a sermon on the providence of God, how God uh, actually, not only does he have a sovereign will, a sovereign plan over all history, but his providence is the act of God bringing about that will. And throughout the the history, the the ancient confessions have have repeatedly talked about how God uses and ordains sin, even in his people, for the sake of bringing about his mission and how that's good for us. And I'm guessing we could all tell stories about how when we are exposed in our weakness uh, because of our sin, that turns turns out to be good for us you start to think less highly of yourself. You realize that you don't have it all together and you need other people and you need the Lord and you begin to 
shrink your view of yourself. And that is very, very good. And I think we could all, uh, after reading James and uh, John and Peter's story, as James and John, we saw a couple chapters ago, saying, Jesus, we deserve like the best seats at the table here. And Peter just saying, I'll, I'll never deny you. Famous fast, uh, last words here, right? And it's God's goodness to actually allow it to happen. I mean, we do this actually with our kids, I'm sure. You've probably let your kids fail intentionally so that they see you don't have it all together. There was just, this happened the other week. I, I cut Dupree's hair, and uh, for some reason he had the idea that he doesn't need me, and he's going to cut his own hair. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And I was kind of excited, and, you know, we're talking, and it's sort of like, and I even let him know, like, it's not uncommon for a young boy to cut his hair once, and, and then it never happens again, usually. Because they realize, like, oh, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I do need that, or I need somebody else to help me. I don't have it all together, and that's how we are in life. And sometimes God allows us to actually fail so that we de depend on him. And I think one of the things probably that Peter didn't catch, I wouldn't have caught, is what this verse is saying that he's quoting, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's coming out of Zechariah 13. And in that passage in Zechariah, God, uh, God Almighty says, he's, he's talking to a sword that he has, and he tells the sword to strike the shepherd, the man of his right hand that he's appointed, and all the sheep are going to scatter. Two-thirds of them will be totally destroyed, and one-third of them will be what you might consider the remnant. They will be refined as through fire and restored, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. In other words, what Jesus is quoting here then is saying, yes, you are going to be scattered, but you will be my people. Because this is a refining process. This is for your good. He's still claiming that he is in full and ultimate control in their dis or, uh, unfaithfulness. But that's, that. that's the, 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 the theme that starts to really unravel through the remainder of the chapter, the unfaithfulness of the disciples. Let's just set that there for a moment, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, let's deal with the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. We'll hit it in two parts. First, this idea of the, the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. The, the way that Mark um, paints this picture and piles on these, the description is, is quite staggering. And it's meant to, to cause us to experience the text a little bit. Verse 32, and they, they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, you, you sit here while I go pray. He took with him Peter and James and John. And now he starts. <clears throat> and he began to be greatly distressed. This, this word has this idea of being, uh, uh, like, really has the idea of being amazed at something, startled in, in wonder at what just happened, but oftentimes in a, in a negative way. And it, that the context is going to help you understand that. And clearly here this is in, in a negative way. But you might think of if you're, if you're walking downtown or something and you saw a, a missile hit a building and you saw the building just explode before you, there would be this sense of, whoa, whoa what just happened? There's this amazement, but... That amazement is not comforting. It's ter terrifying, right? Because it's like, 
And what else is going to happen? Take cover. This is this is deep sense of awe, but full of fear. Jesus is greatly distressed, he says. And then he piles it on, and he's troubled. This can be either full of anxiety or full of depression. It's, it's unrest. It's deeply depressed. Uh, one person says this is the, the, the strongest word for the, the words that are used for depression in the New Testament. And he's going to keep going. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. It's just like, it's not just my my. My body, but this is the very core of my being. Everything who I am is very sorrowful. This is this deep, deep sadness. Or you might say, overwhelmingly distressed. Downcast. I'm being engulfed by sorrow. How much so? He says, to the point of death. I could fall over dead right now. Sorrow has come over me like such a wave that it would crash over me, and I'd just fall over dead right here. In fact, when he goes on, and it says he fell, I would assume that's probably because his, his legs gave out. And he just falls down without anything left of such deep, deep sorrow. And as Catherine uh, prayed, Luke, Luke adds this, this quick little statement that he was sweating drops of blood, which is uh, supposedly a, a medical condition that can happen when you're under such deep stress that there, it comes out as blood and sweat. This, this is what we call just sheer agony. This is the Lord in the garden, the God-man. Fully God, fully man. This is his humanness on full display. In utter, utter agony. And it's very understandable. I mean, the, the next 15 hours are absolute horror that is in front of Jesus. Assuming they had the Passover all the way till midnight, he'll be crucified and dead by the afternoon. He's, he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's going to be denied by the rest of them. One of them is even going to emphatically say, I don't even, I don't even know that, that guy. Then he'll be falsely accused. He'll be mistreated. He'll be spat on. He'll be beaten. And he'll be brutally crucified, hung on a cross unto his death. And of course, that's not the end of it. What Jesus points out here is the cup. Take this cup from me. The cup, that's imagery from the Old Testament where God speaks about having a cup that he fills with the wrath of God. And he gives it to his enemies and makes them drink it. And Jesus, in utter terror, horror, that he's about to take that cup, the wrath of God, and drink it down for his people. I mean, the, the tone of this passage, I just, I think it would be very hard to replicate. I'm not an actor, so there's no way I can do it. 
But you, you, you want to, as you read this passage and slow down, you, you want to see his body tremble as he prays. You, you want to hear his voice quiver, to, to feel it. The author of Hebrews, as he's most likely talking about this scene, he says that in the, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. So I, I assume this to be a loud moment with tears and crying to the Father. See, Abba! My father! Everything's possible for you. Everything. Take this away from me. Take this cup. Remove it. I can't take this. It's a very startling passage and there's we do not want to shrink this down because there's throughout church history there's been fears of what this makes Jesus look like is is he backing down is he is he having a, a sudden lapse of faith here and that could not be the furthest thing from the truth this this is golden for the christian as we walk through this world full of sorrow and pain whether it's dramatic or just this everyday chronic hardship to know that when the author of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, one who's been tempted in all the ways that we are, and yet was without sin, and when he says that because he suffered when he was tempted, he can help us when we are tempted, this is what he's talking about. We have one who knows what it's like to be in utter pain and agony and crying out to God, where are you? We have a Lord who knows our experiences. And this is gold, and we don't want to shrink this. This this is so good for our soul, it's stabilizing. I mean, I I know we all all like to talk with someone when we're struggling. It's helpful sometimes to talk with someone who has experienced something like us, right? And that that can be really helpful, because they can identify us in a particular way. And sometimes, uh, at least for myself, I don't know about you, I, I can think about the Lord and wonder, well, I, I know he's struggled or, you know, struggled and temptation or experienced temptation, but like, I mean, not, I, I, it's a very different world, so not quite like me. And that, that's true. I mean, like there's things like Jesus was not married, so there's going to be different types, of, different types of experiences that he had. Nonetheless, but you might think of it like this, like let's say you, you had a, a, a dog that you had for the last decade or something, the dog died, and you're heartbroken about that. You're very sad. And you're talking to this man that you know, this older gentleman, and he's trying to comfort you. And you, you, ask, you ask him, well, have you, have you ever had a dog or a pet? And he says, no, I, I've never. And immediately there's this sense of like, what, what, you don't know what I feel. But then he begins to tell you how he served in either World War II or Vietnam in combat. And he begins to tell you stories through tears about his close friend who lost his leg. And the, and the, the time where the last place he saw his closest friend 
was lying lifeless in the pool of his own blood. And there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about that loss. Suddenly you go, okay, this, this man has not experienced the, the same thing as me, but he has experienced loss like that is, that is extreme, and he can help me. That, that's how I understand the, the Lord experiencing such deep, deep distress that he would just fall over and say, I could even just die right here. Sweat blood was so deep. The temptation, the pain, the horror, the agony. Brothers and sisters, we have one who can identify with us, who can sympathize with you in your deepest, hardest, most agonizing moments, the Lord himself. So that's the agonizing faithfulness. Let's talk also about the agonizing faithfulness of the Lord. I love the idea that uh, agony and faith are not mutually exclusive. At least sometimes in myself, I can feel like, well, if I'm really full of faith, I would just, it would be okay. I would just be fine. I I wouldn't struggle. But that's not the case, Christian. There is such a thing as agonizing faith that actually makes it quite beautiful. Jesus did not sin in this passage. He's experiencing deep, deep, anxious fear, terror, and he's not sinning, which means, I forget who I got this from someone a long, long time ago, that fear is not the absence of agony. I'm sorry, faith. Faith is not the absence of agony or the absence of fear, the the, the absence of anxious thoughts. But true faith is even in the midst of the hardest situations that fill your soul with dread and saying, yet I will trust God through that. Faith is not somehow getting rid of agony, but is going straight through it and saying, even through this, I will trust God. Because I know he's good. Even if my eyes can't see it, if I can't make sense of it. Which means, Christian, when you experience difficulty, and you're in agony over it, you're distressed, you're full of dread, that does not necessarily mean you're lacking in faith. In fact, it might be the exact opposite. That might be faith on beautiful display. For example, you can think of various people throughout the scriptures. Think of Abraham. I like this one because it's not like a a dramatic major thing in one sense, right? But uh, remember, he was promised to have a, a child with Sarah uh, when he was 75 years old, which that alone is quite amazing if you know any 75-year-olds promised to have a child. Well, that promise never happens, you remember, uh, until 25 years later. So Abraham's near 100 years old. Sarah's near 90. So think of your grandma or your great-grandma approaching her 90s. And you find out she's going to have a baby from her 100-year-old husband. Okay, I don't know how you're going to make that one happen. It's confusing. 
doesn't seem to make sense. There's no logical way you feel like that can happen. And yet, uh, Paul in Romans said that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And I love that passage because it's the idea that even in the midst of confusion, it doesn't make, that promise does not make any sense. And yet I will trust God somehow. And in that type of faith that you trust God, when it doesn't make sense, Paul says, that gives glory to God. Because that makes God look very, very trustworthy. Because you're, you're letting other people around you see, look at how my God is. Even when it doesn't make sense, even then I can trust his promises. And that makes God look beautiful. Or Job. You know the story of Job, right? Very first chapter. What does he lose in the first chapter? He loses all his sheep and cattle. Loses all of, of his employees. And he even loses all of his children. All in a day. He's left with nothing. His wife and his health, that's all he's got. And what does he do, you remember? Tears his clothes, shaves his head in mourning, falls to the ground, and the text says he worshipped. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's beautiful. That's why we love his story. Because he did not sin. The author is very clear about that. He did not sin in any of that. In sheer agony, worships God through the pain. The next chapter, he loses his health, and his wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. You remember what he says. You're speaking as a fool right now. Shall I accept evil or good from the Lord and not accept evil from him? Or you take the psalmist, where again, it's again and again throughout the psalms, you hear the psalmist crying out, How long, O Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? Or another one, How, how, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to look on? Don't you see what they're doing? You're just going to let this happen? How long? How long? Or one that we'll hear very soon from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's beautiful because it's bringing the pain to the Father. Saying, I know I can still trust you. If this was our own property and we thought it was a good idea, I'd probably try to illustrate that, this whole thing idea by bringing a nice vase and some nice drink in it or some nice ice cream and taking it and throwing it up and letting it totally shatter. This is the idea of when life destroys you, still trusting that God is good. And that faith is beautiful that's, that's where Jeremiah wrote that book called Lamentations, Lamenting to God. He's sitting in the rubble. Jerusalem has been destroyed. All the people have been taken to Babylon. Everything's destroyed. He's sitting in the rubble. He writes this book, Lamentations, and right in the middle of the book, you have that, that one of the most famous passages of Scripture that we all probably know. 
And right before it, he's rattling off stuff, saying, I, I've become a laughing stock to all the people. God has filled me with bitterness. I've forgotten what happiness is. And so that I say, my endurance has totally perished. But this, I recall to mind. The loving kindness of God never fails. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And therefore, I will hope in him. And brothers and sisters, when, when we trust God through the agonies of life, when it even comes out as sheer whimper, that's all we have, that is beautiful. That is beautiful before God. I mean, how else do we experience life of a death of a close family member? We're not supposed to stuff down our emotions and grief like stoics and act like it's not there. It's real. It's raw. And we bring it before God. And saying, God, this doesn't make sense. Why them? They were so young. But I'll trust you. When there's an unfaithfulness of a spouse and you're broken to the core. Or betrayal of a close one. When there's a diagnosis that does not look good. When there's an accident or a car accident or any accident that you know is going to have lifelong ramifications. And somehow you have to figure out how do I move forward with this reality. We don't just stuff down our emotions. We, we come to the Lord and let our agony out because he's a good father. He can handle it. He can care for us in those moments. And that expresses beautiful faith. When there's mental illness that will not lift and you've tried everything and you just wonder, Lord, is this what it's going to be for the next couple decades? And yet, Lord, as, as agonizing that is, that is, I will trust you. When you're mistreated, chronic pain, and some of those are the bigger things. I mean, this, we're, we're talking the, the simple things of life, too. It just don't make sense in the home. Day in, day out, the grind. It's confusing again. And some of you here have suffered well to the glory of God and showed us this type of faith, and we want to say to you it's beautiful. We know it's painful. But your faith in the face of adversity ministers to us, and it's beautiful. So we thank you. May God bless you and strengthen you to continue to endure through the hard, agonizing, faithful moments. The Lord's peace be upon you, strengthen you. Well, the other piece I love about this faithfulness of Jesus is that He's not only faithful as a son to the Father, but this picture of him as the faithful good shepherd to his disciples is just stunning. I mean, you have to ask yourself what you think the tone of the passage is from, what is it, verse uh, 
verse 37 and following. How does Jesus come to his disciples in this moment? How does he come to Peter? Simon, are you asleep? You couldn't even do one hour? You weak fool? Is he disappointed in the sense of like he's, he's harsh on them? That's not how I read it. I read this as deep compassion. Here's Jesus in the most terrifying experience of any human in any part of time of history. And who is he thinking about? My sheep. My disciples. My loved ones. In the middle of crying out in sheer agony in the middle of the night. And how in the world they're sleeping, I have no idea, because Jesus has to be loud. But remember, they had been up all night with Passover, had the wine, they're probably tired. And they're conked out, and Jesus is concerned about them. So he goes over, and no doubt, tries. I think he's trying to help Peter. Peter, are you asleep? You, maybe, maybe you're not as strong as you thought. Peter, get up and pray. Pray. There's a long night in front of you. Pray. The Spirit is willing, Peter. But your flesh is weak. And I wish we had time to unpack that more, but the faithfulness of the Good Shepherd in this passage is beautiful. The faithful Son to the Father, yet not my will, yours be done. And then caring for his sheep who slumber. Well, we should ask then, we have the unfaithfulness of the disciples, the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus, and we should ask, how do these, how do these two relate to one another? You know, if I'm honest, my own heart sometimes fears that the way that these relate says something like the unfaithfulness of the people of God disqualifies them to benefit from the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. As if my ability to benefit from the agonizing faith of Christ is dependent on me being faithful to him all the way and getting everything right. And that's a terrifying place to be. But glory to be God, be to God, that that is not how this works. The reality is, is that the unfaithfulness of God's people cannot hinder the agonizing faithfulness of Jesus. Because the faithfulness of Christ for the mission is not dependent on the faithfulness of his people to get it right. In fact, the reason why he's on the mission is because they don't get it right. And so why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he be so faithful to such an unfaithful people? It's because... It's not because you're going to turn over a new leaf. It's not because you're great. It's because. It's because his mercy and his grace would do so. Faithful unto death for unfaithful people. It's the most pure love you can ever imagine. It's more pure of love than you'll ever see on this sin-soaked world. Because we all have limits. 
But here's the Lord, faithful unto death to his unfaithful people. And beloved, know this, that he did not do it begrudgingly. It's not that he said, okay, Father, I'll go through with it, but I don't really like those people. You see what they're doing to me? The author of Hebrews, remember, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It gave him deep joy to know that in him being agonizing, agonizingly faithful to the mission, that he would gather a people who would come underneath him. His blood would pay the penalty for their sins, and he would gather the people of God, and that gave him deep joy. And that includes you, as messy as you are. So as we go to the Lord's table this morning, let us just simply wonder at our Lord what faithfulness we have in this good shepherd that would lay down his life for people so broken, so unfaithful. Let us recall the beauty of our Lord, the mercy, the loyalty that he expresses, the love he has for us. If you're a follower of Christ this morning and worship him as king, God who took on flesh the Son of God and died in the place of sinners to reconcile us with God, we invite you to partake of the meal this 